Today we will begin to work our way through the letter of the uh, the letter to the Philippians, the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. And so in connection with that, we're going to do a little bit of background reading today so that we can understand a little bit of the situation in which the church at Philippi found itself. And so we'll be reading from Acts chapter 16, the verses 1 to 15. Acts chapter 16, the verses 1 to 15, after which we'll read from Philippians chapter 1, the verses 1 and 2. So you'll be able to find Acts 16 on page 1274 of your pew Bible. So the Apostle Paul has begun what is later called his second missionary journey, and he's traveled quite a ways so far. Acts chapter 16 begins in the midst of those travels. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, They tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Those are the humble beginnings of the church of Philippi. Now we'll move ahead to read the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Philippians. And we'll be reading the introduction to this epistle and you'll be able to find that on page 1348 of your pew Bible. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, Grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So far the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our introduction to the church at Philippi as we read it in Acts chapter 16 is actually a fascinating story. What exactly is it that makes it so fascinating? Well, first of all, the fact that the Apostle Paul was never intended to be there in the first place. The Apostle Paul had a completely different agenda in mind when he was thinking of his traveling plans. But more than that, this gives us a picture. It gives us a window into the life of the Apostle Paul himself. Despite his weaknesses and despite his shortcomings, we see a man working as a faithful servant, carrying out the will of God. Now, in the months leading up to his time in Philippi, Paul had been dealing with the decisions of the Jerusalem council. This was the beginning of his missionary journey, the second missionary journey where we find him coming to Philippi. In the year A.D. 48, this church council had been called. And this council was a gathering of the leadership of the people, the the leadership of the, the churches that were there to ask them a major question. Many Gentiles were being brought into the church. Now what? Did they have to listen to the teachings of Moses? Did they have to be circumcised? This is what many of the Jewish Christians who were called Judaizers believed. That's what they had been arguing. But the Jerusalem council decided no. And as a decree, they issued this statement, which you can read in Acts chapter 15, the verses 24 to 29. There, the statement that Paul is tasked with passing on to all of the churches says, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, so that would be the church leaders who who are in Jerusalem, To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have, therefore, sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these you will do well farewell and this is the decree that he was to take with him and pass copies on as he went from church to church to church this was his task as he was sent out from there it was the apostle paul and some of these representatives from the jerusalem council men who had been sent as as men bearing the authority of the jerusalem council The contents of this decree is a sermon in itself, and we won't touch down on that today. 
But this had been his plans. This was what set him on the way. Beginning in Antioch, they stayed there for a while, preaching and teaching. And if you look at your map in the Pew Bible, you can see how Antioch is straight north of Jerusalem on the Mediterranean coast. He, after he stayed there for quite some time, he moved on. He went up along the coast, following the coast through the area of Cilicia, through the region of Syria and Cilicia, preaching the gospel and sharing copies of the same message. He acted as a servant of Christ, bearing this message of the gospel and also bearing the message of the freedom in Christ which this decree held. He wasn't one who took the call or the commands of the church lightly. He wasn't one who took it as some small thing and he wasn't a man who went around advancing his own agenda. But he honored the decisions of the Jerusalem council, these men who had been chosen by God to lead before the congregations. He carried it out as he was called to. Now having carried out this task, he's moved on. He now wants to continue and go back to every city that he's preached to in the past. And that means he's going to keep traveling. So he's at the north end of the Mediterranean right now, just around the curve. And he wants to keep traveling westward towards the cities that he had visited on his first missionary journey. He's very excited to reconnect with them and to encourage them, as any missionary is. If you've spoken to missionaries who've been working in the places that they preached and taught in. Now, the Apostle Paul, he's not carrying out these travels alone. We read how he takes with him a fellow worker named Silas. Acts 15, verse 40, shows us that. That was one of the men who had been sent from this Jerusalem council. Coming to the city of Lystra, he then picked up a promising young man named Timothy, Timothy was a man who was a young man who was well spoken of as a faithful Christian by those Christians in two different cities. And so he makes a valuable addition to Paul's missionary team. And last of all, he comes to the last city, Troas, where he collects Luke as a member of his team. You might not have noticed it, but it is in verse 11 of our passage today, the narrative of the book's the book of Acts, it switches from they and he to we. Dr. Luke, the author of this letter, has joined them and he continues to travel with them, leaving Troas for this new final destination. And it's with this missionary team that the Apostle Paul finally arrives at the city of Philippi. Paul, the servant of Christ, has arrived to carry out in obedience the calling which he has received. And so we'll look at his time today in Philippi under the following theme and points. The dignity of a servant. First of all, coming to Philippi as an obedient servant. And secondly, writing to them as a servant once again. So that's the background of Paul's travels up to this point in time. And that's what he carried with him as he traveled from place to place. Originally, after all of this, they had intended to travel directly into Asia itself and preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit, however, had other plans for them. How exactly the Holy Spirit forbade him from going into Asia is unclear, but 
whatever the case was, he put his own plans on the back burner and he submitted as an obedient servant to Christ. So what was it that finally brought them together to the city of Philippi? Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. There were, as God says in, his, in the letter to the Ephesians, the first chapter, men and women whom he had chosen since before the creation of the world to set his love on. And you can see God's faithfulness in this. If there is a child of his, even at the ends of the earth, he will send and he will bring that child to him. God was sending this servant of his to call a small community to faith in Jesus Christ. And it was Paul who answered, acting as an instrument for this task in the obedience of faith. Now, humanly speaking, the colony of Philippi was not the first place that you would expect the Apostle Paul to go. It was a Roman colony, and it was settled by veterans of Caesar's wars with Mark Antony. So many of these citizens would be the descendants of these Roman soldiers. Although it was the leading city in the province of Macedonia, it was also a city that was a symbol of Roman occupation and oppression. That in itself wouldn't have been a very great attraction to this city. Now Paul's normal way of going about things when he went from city to city, from place to place, was to go to a synagogue. He would first meet with the Jewish community there. And when he was there, he would uh, establish a small community of believers. People who had been converted. People who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this core group that he established would now not only know the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but they would also know well all of the theological background of the Old Testament. And so it would form a solid core group, one that he didn't have to train much. This would be a firm foundation to build missionary outreach on. Humanly speaking, it was the most practical way of doing things. But he didn't do that here. Why not? He couldn't. This community didn't have very many Jewish converts at all. Normally you needed ten Jewish men to establish a synagogue, but this community didn't even have that. All they had was a handful of women who, because they didn't even have a synagogue where they could gather, they would go down to the river to pray. And the leader in this small group of women was Lydia, a seller of purple cloth. Now you need to understand that one of the barriers here, one of the issues with lacking a core group wasn't just the lack of a synagogue. It goes beyond that to the status of these women who gathered together on that day the status of women in the Roman Empire in general. Now certainly they could be very enterprising and Lydia herself proves this. She shows this by seeming to have been fairly wealthy in her trade. But though they were granted many freedoms, they weren't esteemed on the same level of men in the society of the day. 
So Paul's obedience in coming to these women and elevating them and teaching them was very countercultural. Women were second-class citizens. They were first tied to their father's household, and then when they were married, they were tied to their husbands. The male leader had, in theory, in theory, absolute authority over his house. And especially in Jewish circles, the women were considered to be too busy with caring for the children to be able to fulfill the requirements of the law of Moses. They were seen as less significant when it came to this kind of work. If you wanted to make waves in a society, you would go to the husbands, to the men, to the leaders of the home. So to recap, this was a city that was a a symbol of Roman oppression. There was no usual core group that was drawn from a synagogue of Jewish male believers that they could work with. These were the small and humble beginnings from a human perspective that Paul faced. And yet this was where God had called Paul and his group of missionaries, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, to minister. And this church could see Paul's faithful obedience as a servant. They could see it brought to life. When we read the opening words of the letter to the Philippians, we read Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. These Philippians would know the truth of that. Here was a man who wasn't searching for personal esteem. He wasn't searching for personal gain. He was a man who was responding in faithful obedience to the Lord. They would know the truth of that. You see, what seems small in the eyes of the world, beloved, is still precious in the sight of God. God has sent Paul across the world for the express purpose of God himself opening Lydia's heart. Acts 16, verse 14. Despite the humble nature of her and her community, God himself reaches out. And God himself takes what is humble and he crowns it with dignity. He crowns the lowest of humanity with the gospel. God's wisdom, though it seems like foolishness to the world, uses patiently faithful work of his servants to carry out his will. And through this quiet obedience... He granted a real and lasting joy. As this group grew in size and grew in wisdom and grew in knowledge, they grew to become some of the Apostle Paul's greatest supporters in kingdom work. And even in their poverty, they became rich in generosity. And God loved them for it. He lets this shine through in the Apostle Paul's deep love for them, echoed time and time again in his letter to them and to others. Our God, using his servant, who is willing to go in obedience to the most humble and the most downtrodden, God took what was humble and small, and he delighted in it. 
This brings us to our second point. It's with this background of humble beginnings that I want you to look again now at these opening verses of the letter to the Philippians. Here, ten years later, the Apostle Paul reaches out to this congregation once again. And they've come a long ways in ten years. Where before there was only a small group of women and a Philippian jailer, which we read about later in Acts chapter 16, a congregation has now sprung up. There are now bishops, whom we would call elders in this church, and deacons over the congregation. The congregation has matured and has grown to the point where they can now be independent. And yet Paul still has words of encouragement for them. Now, I want you to notice how he brings these words of encouragement. The way that the Apostle Paul describes himself to Timothy, himself and Timothy to them. He says to them, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now, beyond reminding them of how he came, what else is significant about this introduction? Beyond reminding them of the way he came in humility, the way he came in obedience to the call of Christ, what else is significant here? He doesn't call himself an apostle. He calls himself a servant. So why is that so significant? Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul is quick to emphasize his leadership and his calling. If you look at his other letters, he quickly points them to his authority as an apostle right there in the introduction. And even in the two other letters where he refers to himself as a bondservant in Titus and in Romans, he follows that up still with calling himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't do that here. This letter, in fact, stands out in particular specifically because it deliberately replaces his normal opening of apostle. And instead, it focuses on his calling as a servant. There's a very specific reason for that. Now, in the first place, it it shows his very warm relationship that he has with his church. There's no immediate need for him to break out references to his authority. He loves them. And they love him. That love is enough to motivate them to be receptive already to what he has to say. But there's more to it than that. You see, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to this letter, uh, to, to this church, this letter of the Philippians, he's heard things. He's heard rumors of division among them. And so he wants to emphasize unity. A unity which can only come in an atmosphere of humility. For the Apostle Paul, there could be no greater way to emphasize his willingness to be humbled for the sake of Christ than to introduce himself using that humble title, bondservant. The word for bondservant in our passage is the Greek word doulos, or slave. And this was not a title that was a reason for pride. In the ancient Roman world, a servant was even worse than a second-class citizen. You were property. Slaves could be pretty casually abused. 
One Roman philosopher, Musonius Rufus, said, every master has full authority to use his slave as he might wish. As a result, many slaves, they suffered violence, they suffered mistreatment, they suffered sexual exploitation. And your master had the right to life or death over you if you wanted to protest. Yes, there were what some might call good masters, ones who treated their slaves better than most, and some positions of slaves were very good and very prominent in the empire. If your master was powerful, you as a slave could share in some of that power and others wouldn't dare to touch you. But if your master wasn't happy with you, he could just sell you right along. And the person who bought you, who's to say that he would be a good master? In our church language today, we don't always get how radical this word actually was for Paul. Servant of Christ or slave of Christ might be something that rolls off the tongue as we read it here in the letter to the Philippians, but that wasn't the case in that day. People could look at the slaves among them, even slaves that they themselves owned, and think, really? Paul, you're introducing yourself like that? My life could be so much better than that. Why would I want to be associated with that? But the Apostle Paul is making a point here. He models joyfully being a servant of Christ. Not just willingly taking the title of servant or slave, but taking such joy in the honor that it bestows on him to the point of drawing the attention of the whole Philippian congregation to it. Because he knows that God takes what is humble, that God takes what is despised, and grants it dignity. How did this begin? Where did this come from? When did God take what was humble and what was despised? When did God take this title of slave and grant it such dignity? Well, let's take a look at the Gospel of John for a moment. John 13, verses 1 to 5. We read here, a portion of the life of Christ. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and he girded himself. That is, he wrapped it around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel which he had wrapped around his waist. What Jesus had meant by his actions wouldn't become clear until after he had suffered and died. But the symbol was clear. 
In verse 12 we read, So when he had washed their feet, taken their garments, and sat down again, he says, said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Christ loved his people and was willing to serve them to the point of death freely, joyfully. He's not calling his people to do what he has not done already. He's not calling his people to do what he does not give us the strength to do. But rather, he's calling us to a life that he himself has already crowned with dignity. And the Apostle Paul was reminding the Philippians of this. The letter to the Philippians is one that greatly emphasizes the need for humility within a church and the need for the recognition that this humility doesn't bring shame with it. But it's a humility that brings with it joy in the service of Christ. And so as its most significant feature, this letter quotes a hymn in chapter 2, which emphasizes Christ's becoming a servant. And we'll look, at more, we'll look at this more when we come to it, but this is what Paul grounds his servanthood in. It shows what is contemptible in the eyes of man doesn't necessarily mean it's truly worthy of contempt. Instead, as with the humility of Christ, it can be a reason for great praise. It can be a reason for great fruit to be born. And so, as Christ himself humbled himself before us, and as he redeemed us on the cross, so we too humble ourselves before each other. It doesn't matter what others may think. It doesn't matter whether they scoff or ridicule the idea of humbling yourself for the sake of others. These things don't matter to you because just as with Christ, you are working for an audience of one. You are working for the one who has redeemed you from sin. Who has humbled himself to the point of being a servant for you. One who had all of the glory of heaven, who cast all of that aside so that he could come down to earth for you. He brought the Apostle Paul halfway across the earth, you might say, to bring to him Lydia and her small community of believers but that's nothing in comparison with what he himself did. He laid all of his glory by and came down from the heights of heaven to be humbled as the lowest servant on earth so that you could be brought to him. In school, it can be not cool to be the Christian kid, but you are working for an audience of one. In our relationships, as husbands and wives, 
as children, as parents, we might not always feel like we're receiving the appreciation that we might desire. But you are working for an audience of one. At home, your brother or sister might tease you for going overboard in your love for Christ, in your love for his word as you spend time in it. But you are working for an audience of one. In the workplace, your coworkers might look at you funny for what you believe. But you are working for an audience of one. Coming into the church foyer after this service, reaching out to those who need it and those who are on the outskirts, as you interact with each other, building each other up and rejoicing in your Savior, you are working for an audience of one. Christ is your master. And it's working in his service as one who has been redeemed that it is, that is the most meaningful. And this is something that brings you beyond the ridicule of the world. Because you understand the meaningful nature of your servitude, of your service. You, beloved, you abide in Christ, the servant's king. Your humility and your servant heart are lent dignity by the one who came not to be served, but to serve. Not to gain glory, but to crown you with the gospel. And the service in the court of Christ as one redeemed by him is worth more than all of the applause of the world. Amen.